So today is the last day of 2023. And how would you sum up the year? How would you describe your 2023? Now, if you do not know how to do that, or you find that taxing, it's easy. You could let your phone do it for you. Using photos that have been compiled for you the past 364 days. You know, your phone could do that for you. In fact, while I was writing my sermon, suddenly my MacBook notified me to look at my year in review, as if Apple's servers were reading what I was writing. So is that impressive or is that creepy? A little bit of both. And so how was your 2023? Now, if you let your phone sum it up for you, it could run a slideshow for you and roll out for you your sumptuous dinners that you had this year, the cafes that you visited, the cities, the different cities that you've toured, the friendships that you've nurtured. Your phone could display your achievements, the award that you received, the promotion that you had, or your dream purchase. And some of you are exercising, even your achievement of weight loss. If you let your phone sum up your year, it would tell you, first slide, that 2023 was a blast, right? But to say 2023 was a blast is an incomplete summary. Why? Because your phone may not tell you everything. Your phone has curated your albums for you. And so because it is curated, it will not remind you that in 2023, for instance, you got demoted. That on the same year, you were laid off. It will not tell you that it was the year of your breakup because you had a fierce fight and there is no reconciliation in sight. Your photo app won't tell you that this was the year your kidneys started failing. So you don't no picture of that. Or that your cancer is back. It won't play for you the day you lost your baby. Or the day you scattered your parents' ashes. Your curated year in review does not play for you the adversities of 2023. It will not remind you of the evils of 2023. Yes, evil. Because evil is one of the words that the writer of Ecclesiastes uses to describe the year. Every single year, in fact. Because that is how the writer describes life. Life is not a blast. But life, life it's filled with vanity. It's a vanity of vanities. It is meaningless and it is evil. And so the preacher in Ecclesiastes describes life, describes everything to be vanity. Now the word vanity denotes the idea of uh, imperceptibility, brevity and futility, frustration. Some Bible versions use the word meaningless to try to capture the definition of the Hebrew word hebel. How is life meaningless? How is it vanity? Well, I suggest to you three factors seen from Ecclesiastes. Three factors that contribute to the vanity 
of life. They are death, injustice, and our powerlessness. Death, injustice, and our powerlessness. And so how does death contribute to the meaninglessness of life? Well, death unfairly levels both the wise and the fool. You see, the wisdom books of the Bible, it will always contrast for you two types of people, the wise and the fool. Uh, the wise is one who fears God, one who obeys His commandments, one who pursues right living through wisdom. The fool, on the other hand, is one who ignores God, one who shuns His commandments and then instead follows folly. And so between the wise and the fool, the wise is definitely the one who is always ahead. He is the one who has the advantage of being wise and also, as a result, avoiding trouble. And yet, the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us, death comes and equalizes both the wise and the fool. And so you may have heard of the saying that death is a great equalizer. Hmm? The writer of Ecclesiastes would say, death is an unjust equalizer. So slide comes up. He says in chapter 2, the wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also, this also is vanity. And so death is unjust in equalizing because it both, it levels both wise and fool and places them both on the same field. Which is to say that no matter how hard the wise try to live rightly, eat healthily, sleep fully, death comes saying, you know, you are not too wise to die. You are not too important to die. Just like the fool, the wise is made dispensable, equally dispensable by death. And so when you think about it, isn't that meaningless? Furthermore, death wipes away everything that one has done and that one has accumulated in one's lifetime. And so the writer laments. Next slide. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. See, what death does is that death dispossesses one everything that one has worked for. It snatches all your achievements and possessions. And even before it does, a dying man can make someone promise. You know, a dying man can always say, well, you know, swear on my grave that you will not sell off the house. Dying man can do that. But who is to say that that will not happen? Because death dispossesses and transfers the possessions to somebody else, just like that. 
Life is meaningless because of death. Secondly, life is meaningless because there is injustice. So the writer of Ecclesiastes has seen it himself. He says, in my vague life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. You know, have you ever heard one say to God, why are the wrong people dying? Have you ever heard somebody say that? Why are the wrong people dying, God? Because, you know, I have a list of names and it's not getting any shorter. Have you heard of that? Because good people die while bad people live long. And that, you see, there is a sense of injustice that makes life meaningless and frustrating. And, you know, picking up from the death as a factor, injustice is seen to that when death knocks too early on the righteous, it arrives, on the other hand, too late on the wicked. And so the writer says, <clears throat> there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. You witness this, don't you? Everywhere. In the workplace, for instance, it is the good ones who are living the bad life, and it is the bad ones living the good life. So the bad ones are the ones getting the promotions, while the good, they're the ones getting the retrenchments. And this injustice makes life meaningless. And so you have death, you have injustice, rendering life meaningless. But thirdly, life is frustrating, meaningless, because we are powerless. We are powerless. So the writer says, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. You know, people say that I am OC, I'm obsessive compulsive. If I visit your home and then I see your family picture hung on the wall and a little bit slanted, I'll pull out my phone and then I'll use the level and then I'll adjust the picture frame. Otherwise, I'll keep looking like this, right? Straightening that kind of crookedness is very easy. But many things in life cannot be fixed. So the writer says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? We are powerless over many things that God has made crooked. And this seems to be a figurative description of the cursed world, the fallen world, the world's fallen state, rendering many, many things crooked. And so you have incurable diseases, you have congenital disorders. You have the circumstances into which you and I were born into. Calamities. There's a long list of what is crooked in this world, friends. And they are unlike picture frames that you and I can always shift. No. We are powerless, friends. And that is so frustrating. 
Now we've read also in chapter 3 that in this life there is a season for everything. In this life there is an appointed time for this and a time for that. But as to when that time comes, we are unable to discern. So the writer says, we cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. And so, yes, there's a time to weep. There's a time to mourn. But when will the time to laugh and when will the time to dance come? And once they do come, how soon shall weeping and mourning return again? We fear. And so you see, we are powerless over many events in our lives. We are powerless to straighten and fix things, powerless to know what lies ahead. And so the factors that render life meaningless, death, injustice, our powerlessness. And then to make it worse, the writer says there's evil in life. There's evil in life. And he has seen it himself. In fact, he calls it a grievous evil. And by the word evil, he means adversity. He means distress. So he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. Verse 17, Moreover, as a result of the loss, all his days he eats in darkness with much vexation and sickness and anger. Now this sort of misfortune is not foreign to us. Did you read of the man who lost his life savings? $150,000. He lost all of it after his wife installed a malware disguised as an app in order to buy organic eggs. So she wanted to buy, was it 60 eggs? And then in the process, she lost all her husband's savings. And so now without cash for his daughter's education, without cash for his mother's medical expenses, his days must be filled with vexation, sickness, and anger. And this sort of evil does happen. Moving on, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. So there is too this evil, this calamity of deprived pleasure. One has everything, but not enjoy everything he has. And what could be the reason? I do not know. It could be due to an illness, a stroke perhaps, or it could be a slavery to work, such as there is no time to enjoy the produce of one's work. Whatever it is, it is calamitous to have it all, but enjoy none of it all. And so such is life. 
Life is not a blast. It is instead, according to the writer of Ecclesiastes, meaningless and evil. It is meaningless given death, given injustice, and given our limited abilities. Life is evil too. The misfortunes, the calamities that befall all of us. And so we ask, why then could not life be a blast? Why could life not be meaningful and perfect? And here's the answer. Ecclesiastes paints for us life after Genesis 3 and before Revelation 21. Ecclesiastes describes life for us after the fall and before the renewal. It portrays for us life outside Eden and before a new heaven and a new earth. See, because the first man and woman sinned and brought sin into the world, life has since become meaningless. So God pronounced a judgment, gave a judgment to Adam, and he tells him, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Genesis chapter 3, 19. That means that he will labor, he will toil, he will suffer, and then he will die. It's a bit like, Ecclesiastes, right? Isn't that the same description of life? One toils, one suffers, and then one dies. That's Ecclesiastes for you and for me, for our reality check. But in case you now feel very, very low and depressed because of this message, let me tell you that this book isn't here to just rub life into your face, and just in case we are deluded into thinking that we are having a blast. The writer does comment for us how to cope in this fallen world. Next slide. He says, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So if you've read Ecclesiastes at about six times throughout the book, the writer commends to find enjoyment, to find enjoyment in food, in drink, in work, in relationship. Now he does sound to be saying it cynically that, you know, he says there is nothing better to do but, but then he says, although he sounds cynical, he qualifies that enjoyment is actually God's gift. It comes from the hand of God. And so we deduce that in the midst of a difficult, frustrating, meaningless life, you and I are to enjoy the little joys in life. Enjoy the little joys in life. Why? Because they are God's gift. And so, yes, life can be frustrating, but do not sulk away. Do not wallow in frustration. Learn to live with it, because such is the fallen world. And how 
does one do so? Well, enjoy the simple joys of life. The joy of eating is one example. You know, once I caught a line from a Taiwanese drama that dad was watching. Uh, there was this woman who was pained by her lover's abandonment. And she told herself, I must go and have a candy. Candy. Because mom said, when life is hard, eat candy. Because the simple little joy of eating a sweet can somehow lessen and distract us from the pain of life. Now this may perhaps explain why the Scandinavians are the happiest people in the world because they have fika every day. Don't they? They have cinnamon roll and coffee. Now you and I do not have to eat bib gourmet food to enjoy food. Nope. On the contrary, if I do that, I get indigestion from it. Maybe perhaps from seeing the bill afterwards. Any simple delicious food is God's gift. And even the ability to enjoy food, it comes from Him. And so how does one cope with the frustration of life? Well, enjoy the simple joy of eating. Enjoy too the simple joys of drinking. Now, because we have minors in our midst uh, this morning, I should not be recommending wine, even though the context of the passage demands so. And so the writer says, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. Chapter 9, verse 7. And that bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens the heart. Chapter 10, verse 19. And so when he commands drink, he must be talking about wine, which is the drink that perks one up. Now, thankfully, we live at a time when there's a wide range of drink choices, non-alcoholic drinks, that perks one up. And so if carbonated water gives you the fizz, pun intended, go have it. And if a bubble tea, you know, the drink of the Gen Z, gives you the perk, go have it. If it makes you happy, sip it. Just make sure that you chew the boba well. I, on the other hand, derive delight in making myself a cup of pour-over coffee because the entire ritual from grinding the coffee beans to drinking a cup is a good distraction to the frustrations I experience in life. And so enjoy the simple joy of drinking, says the writer to us. Simple joys also include, next slide, let your garments be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. It's the little joys of fashion and grooming. Now, I was told that whenever a hairdresser visits the elderly care and, you know, gives the residents a haircut, you know what happens? Everybody perks up. All the residents become happy because grooming contributes to happiness. Life is painful. And so wear a newly pressed shirt, put on some cologne, wear some makeup, and tonight you will have a chance to do so if you've signed up for the New Year's Eve dinner. Now, simple joys, of course, cannot exclude relationships. Next slide. 
he says in chapter 9, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. And so I mentioned fika a while back. You do not fika alone. You're not supposed to enjoy cinnamon roll and coffee all by yourself. It's a joy that is shared in relationships. And the writer cites the enjoyment of one's spouse. Notice, listen carefully, he does not say life is painful enough and then you have a wife. He doesn't say that, right? Because he views the spouse as the one to love and enjoy life with. How do you do that? It's reserved for another sermon. But let me tell you, watch the video of the wife who brought her husband to court. I'm sure you've seen that for a parking ticket. You know, the wife says, this is, I got a parking ticket, but it's, it's under my name, but I was not the one driving. He is the one driving. And so she brought the husband to court and she says, he's guilty, I'm not. He tells the, she tells the judge. The judge was a bit confused and asked the husband, do you go through this every day? And the husband says, before he could answer, the wife says, we have a happy marriage for the past 43 years. Isn't it? She asked the husband. And the husband with a smile says, yes, dear. And everybody in the court burst into laughter. Point, learn from the husband. Not the way he drives so that he gets a parking ticket, but how he diffuses contentions. Because our spouses are for us to enjoy the little joys of life with. And so how to cope with a fallen world where life is meaningless and evil? Enjoy food. Enjoy drink. Enjoy your spouse. Put on new clothes. Groom up. Enjoy the little joys in life the way God intended them to be. Because these are God's gifts. And now when we are told that such enjoyments are God's gifts, Aren't you moved by His goodness and grace? Because sinful beings in a fallen world do not deserve gifts from God. Agree? Sinful beings in a fallen world, they do not deserve goodness from God, the God whom we rebelled against. And yet God, in His benevolent love, permits us to enjoy the things that come from His hand. And so it is with this background that we listen to the summary commendation from the writer, which is found in the last chapter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So there are so many things that we can never understand about life. Many things that are beyond our control. Yet, we can trust that God is nevertheless good and trustworthy. Why? Because firstly, He's given us gifts to enjoy in the midst of the painful life in a fallen world. And so tonight or today, when we celebrate New Year's Eve, perhaps over a meal with loved ones and friends, 
we celebrate not because 2023 was a blast, but because God has blessed us with many little joys amidst a painful, frustrating life. And then despite our powerlessness to discern, which Kenneth has just mentioned, to discern what 2024 has in store for us, you probably ask, will it be the year, will it be the season when the time to lose comes? Will 2024 be the time to hate? Or the time to cast away? Or the time to die? Despite our powerlessness to know what lies ahead, we can find comfort that the meaningless life, meaninglessness of this life is not forever. Next slide. Paul tells us, in Romans chapter 8, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is re to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Leave that slide on for a while. I was told that the word futility to which creation, to which life is subjected to, the word futility is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word hebel, meaningless vanity. God subjected the world to futility, to meaninglessness because of sin. And yet he did so with hope for a day when its reversal happens. It is the day of glory that awaits us. It is a day when we will be finally revealed as glorious children of God. It is the day when His Son Jesus, our Redeemer, comes back to make all things new. Now Jesus came into this world to give His life for our sins. And uh, you could say that the Son of God subjected Himself to the Hebel of this life. He saw the evil. He experienced the futility we experience. For example, he was the rich who sat in a low place. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 6. He was the prince who walked like a slave. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 7. He was the creator, he created all things, who never enjoyed comfort deserving of his work. After all, Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Imagine he created all these, and yet he did not enjoy what he created. The Creator made all that we enjoy, but the Creator himself did not have a palace to reside in on earth. And when he died, he did not even have a proper burial. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 3, gives you an example of the meaninglessness of one who does not have a proper burial. And then how did Jesus die? 
while he suffered injustice. He was leveled together with criminals. Jesus was the righteous to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. So that sinners will be the wicked to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. Jesus died the death that we deserve so that we may live the life that we do not deserve. And so Jesus, the Son of God, subjected himself to the meaninglessness and the evils of this life. He did so for our forgiveness. He did so in order to give us new life for our final redemption. He did so so that when he returns finally, he will return to straighten what is crooked. And so how was your 2023? It's not a blast. It's a mix of prosperity and adversity. It's a mix of good and evil. And yet God in his goodness sustained us through, allowing us to enjoy his gifts even in the fallen state of our world. And he will be faithful to sustain us in the year that lies ahead. We know not what lies ahead, yet we trust that God has made all things beautiful in his time. And the most beautiful is when his son finally comes. And when he finally does so, you and I who believe in Jesus will experience a real blast. Let us pray. Lord, as the, draw, as the year draws to a close, we ask that you teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Amen.